Acts chapter number 26, and let's begin reading in verse number 1. The Word of God says, Then Agrippa said unto Paul, Thou art permitted to speak for thyself. Then Paul stretched forth the hand and answered for himself. I think myself happy, King Agrippa, because I shall answer for myself this day before thee, touching all the things whereof I am accused of the Jews, especially because I know thee to be expert in all customs and questions which are among the Jews. Wherefore I beseech thee to hear me patiently. My manner of life from my youth, which was at the first among mine own nation at Jerusalem, know all the Jews, which knew me from the beginning, if they would testify, that after the most straightest sect of our religion I lived a Pharisee. Now I stand and am judged for the hope of the promise made of God unto our fathers, unto which promise are twelve tribes instantly serving God day and night, hope to come. For which hope's sake, King Agrippa, I am accused of the Jews. Why should it be thought a thing incredible with you that God should raise the dead? I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem. And many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. And when they were put to death, I gave my voice against them. And I punished them oft in every synagogue and compelled them to blaspheme. Being exceedingly mad against them, I persecuted them even unto strange cities. Whereupon, as I went to Damascus with authority and commission from the chief priests, at midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus, whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. Whereupon, O King Agrippa, I was not disobedient unto the heavenly vision. Let's pray together tonight. Heavenly Father, I'd ask that you'd bless your word this evening. Lord, there's nothing in and of ourselves in the strength of our flesh that deserves your blessing. So, Father, help us tonight to not lean on the arm of the flesh, but, Father, instead to lean upon the strong arm of Your Holy Spirit. I pray that You'd speak to each heart that which would glorify You the most and accomplish in each life, Lord, that which would draw us closer to Thee. Father, we love You tonight. We ask all these things in Christ's name. Amen. Now, this evening we've read in Acts chapter number 26 the last narrative example of the testimony of the Apostle Paul. Now, you say, preacher, what do you mean by narrative uh, example of his testimony? Well, in the book of Philippians, Paul sort of gives his testimony. He talks about, I was a Hebrew and, uh, of Hebrews and, uh, you know, of the tribe of Benjamin and, uh, you know, uh, circumcised the eighth day and so on and so forth, a Pharisee. But the last time recorded in Scripture that we have a, a historical context in which Paul is telling men his full testimony of his salvation experience. You'll actually find in the book of Acts three separate occasions where Paul's testimony is recorded. The first time it's recorded, it's recorded merely as a matter of, of, of history uh, by the apostle, or by uh, Luke, rather, uh, as he writes the book of Acts. The next time you'll find it is in Acts chapter number 22. Paul is giving the testimony himself. And then the third and final time you'll find it is the occasion upon which we read in front of King Agrippa, where Paul himself again gives his testimony. Now, something I found interesting as I read these passages of Scripture is that though they never contradict, not even once, they don't always tell us the same things about his testimony. You'll find that, that many people will say, oh, there's, there's contradictions in the Word of God, there's discrepancies in the Word of God. They'll oftentimes point to the Gospels and say that uh, the, the four different records do not always uh, sync up one with another and coincide. 
But I find that oftentimes when people say that, if they'd take just an extra half a second and read their King James Bible, they'd find out that it's not that they do not agree, but rather that one sheds light in one place where another does not. One adds something that another does not, and the other one will add something that the former one has left out. And so, just another proof that our Bible is is completely divinely inspired and perfectly preserved, in that you can read all of these records together, and they provide a composite picture of the occasion as it has taken place. By the same token, when you read the Gospels, you'll find that oftentimes what is said as well as what is left out is by distinct design. God is painting a portrait for us. And many of you have studied this and heard this before, but we know that the book of Matthew was written to the Jews primarily. Now, we have it in this day of grace. It's a blessing to us. It's a help to us. It'll always be a help to us. But it's written to the Jewish people, and it presents Christ as the King of the Jews. You'll find that his lineage traces in the book of Matthew from David uh, rather than from Abraham or from Adam. It, It traces back to that first king whom God anointed over Israel and that first king whom God made promises to that his kingdom would be everlasting. The book of Mark presents to us Christ as the servant of God and the servant of man. You'll find no genealogy in the book of Mark. Do you know why? Because a servant's genealogy is irrelevant. Only what he's doing in that moment provides value. And time and time again in the book of Mark, you'll see Christ as the servant. The book of Luke presents to us Christ's genealogy, tracing all the way back to Adam. For it presents to us the humanity of the Savior. He's presented to us as the Son of Man. We see Him hungry. We see Him thirsty. We see Him fatigued. We see Him in pain. And all through the book of Luke, time and time again, He's called the Son of Man to remind us that God became man, that God was manifest in the flesh for you and I. Those three Gospels are what we call synoptic, for they present to us basically the same uh, set of of stories, basically the same set of truths, uh, just with slight differences. But then there's the Gospel of John. The Gospel of John is not one of the synoptic Gospels, for it presents to us Christ in a whole different light. And there in the book of John, He's presented to us as the Son of God. His divinity is in view in the book of John. So we see that oftentimes what is said and what is left out is by distinct divine purpose. But I find this is true not only in the Gospels, but in other portions of the Word of God where one event or one truth is recorded many, many different times, we'll find that it paints us different pictures. Can I just make it personal for just a simple moment? Not only is Paul giving us different truths for different theological reasons, but Paul's getting older. Very likely when he first in the book of Acts chapter number 9, when that was recorded, it was probably early on when he had met Luke. And no doubt Paul would have early on, maybe the very day that he met Luke, would have told him about this Damascus Road experience. And very likely Luke would have sat down and pinned it down somewhere and wrote down what was so fresh on Paul's mind. Many years pass and we come to chapter number 22 and he gives his testimony. It does not contradict the former testimony in any way, but we find that the emphasis has changed in some way. You know this truth to be so, because oftentimes when you start to remember things, it's not necessarily that you remember them differently, but you remember different things about them. All of the sudden, there are certain things that come to the forefront of memories that we have in mind. And as our our mind changes, as our Christian walk changes, and by the way, salvation is instantaneous. Don't let anyone tell you otherwise. We, We have an immediate salvation, but the Christian walk is a journey. And we change and we grow, or at least we ought to, and we develop as Christians. And certain things in our priorities shift and move and change as we grow closer to Jesus Christ. This happens in Acts chapter 22. And then when we come down to chapter number 26, Paul is aged. He's coming to the end of his life. He's been through a lot over the past year or two. He's stood trial in the past year or two. He's spent time in prison in the past year or two. And no doubt that would change the way a man would perceive some things. And I want us to take a few moments tonight. I want us to compare these three testimonies. And I've titled the message tonight, Paul's Three Testimonies. 
Now, we know Paul only had one testimony. But as you read these, you find three different sets of truths that we can gain and glean from. And I want us to take a moment and look at them tonight. There's three things that happen in the life of Paul. Let me say, first off, as we read these three narratives, and we've not taken the time to read all three, but you have them in front of you, and I'll point them out. I want to say that, first off, as Paul got to be older, as time went on, we see that the light that he saw gets brighter. Let me just show it to you very simply. Uh, I want you to look with me in chapter number 9, verse number 3. The Word of God says this, And as he journeyed, he came near Damascus, and suddenly there shined round about him a light from heaven. That's all it says. Just simply a light from heaven. Now I want you to look with me at chapter number 22. Look at verse number 6. He's telling the story again. And he says, And it came to pass that as I made my journey and was come nigh unto Damascus about noon, suddenly there shone from heaven, notice this, a great light round about me. Now look in our text, if you've got your Bible open to it, and look down at verse number 13. As Paul tells this story to Agrippa, he says, At midday, O king, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. We see that the shining or the glory of this light grew as Paul's life went on. Can I say this? The longer you walk with Jesus Christ, the more precious He's going to be to you. The longer you walk with Jesus Christ, the more glorious His glory will be to you. Something's wrong when we get to the place in our Christian life that we just get over it. You say, preacher, do you believe somebody that's genuinely saved can get over it? Oh, I believe they can. I believe they can. There's been times in my life when when I've gotten more over it than I ought to have gotten over it. But let me tell you something, the more you walk with the Lord, and I believe Paul made mistakes, and I don't believe he's a perfect man. In fact, we find in the book of Acts times when the Holy Ghost expressly forbid Paul to do something. Paul did it anyway. The Scripture is very clear to record some of Paul's flaws and some of his failures for us. But I believe Paul was a man that walked with God. As you look through the book of Acts, time and time again, you'll find conversations between the Lord and Paul. Paul would be in prison. He'd be talking to the Lord. Paul would have a shipwreck. The Lord would be talking to Paul. Over and over again, we find examples of Paul's relationship with the Lord in the book of Acts. And as time went on, and he began to think back and look back over what happened that day, it seemed as though the light just kept getting bigger and grander and brighter. I say this as a 27-year-old young man, and I, 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 I am keenly aware of my youth when I say this, but even I can look back, and it seems like that light is brighter today than it was 17 years ago. I don't necessarily mean that the experience is any more real. I don't necessarily mean that I, that I see that the Lord loved me more then. But as I look back, I see how far God had to reach for me. And I see how wonderful He was in doing so. We see that the shining of this light became brighter. But I want you to notice a second thing. Look what he says. And he says this in chapter 26. He doesn't say it at any other time. But at the end of verse number 13, he says this, shining round about me and them which journeyed with me. He does not say this the first two times. He does not say it did not shine around them. But he just doesn't mention the fact that this light shined not only on him, but those that were with him. I sort of believe that Paul is talking about the scope of this light growing brighter. You see, Paul now looks back and he realizes that not only did it affect him, but it affected those around him. And surely, if they had been willing to see it the way Paul had seen it, they too could have been saved. I look back at my life, and I look at when I got saved, and I think about friends that I had. And, and, and uh, you know, I, I was 10, year old, 10 years old when I got saved. And think about other kids that were in church at that time. And I can distinctly remember times when they made statements to me concerning the things of the Lord, even as a 10-year-old boy. And I look back now, and you know what I realize? I realize that at the same time that light was shining on me, it was shining on them. I realized that at the same time God was working in my heart, God was also working in their heart. 
There's some of them I can point to and I can say that today they're serving the Lord. But the tragedy is there's others that I can point to and say they turned away from that light. They refused that opportunity. They walked away from it. We have no news in any way of what happened to the men that led Paul away when Paul was blind at this point after he had seen the light. We do not know what happened to them. It could have been they got saved, but the Scripture gives us no reason to believe this. They saw the same light. They heard the same voice. Paul, as he gives his testimony, and some folks have claimed that this is some sort of a contradiction. It's not a contradiction. Uh, because in, in, I believe it's chapter number 9 when he mentions it, he says that they did not hear the voice that spake to him. But then in chapter 22, he says that they heard the voice, but they saw no man. In other words, in chapter 9, he acknowledges that they heard the noise of what was taking place. But in chapter 22, he realizes they heard the voice, but they didn't hear him speaking. I think about kids that I sat in school with. I think about young people that I, as a Christian school kid, I sat in the same preaching services that they did. And listen, I mean, I was rotten as a kid. I mean, I, I know y'all don't believe that because I'm just so wonderful now, but, but I mean, I, I was. I'm not claiming that I was some kind of great spiritual, you know, bulwark whenever I was in school. But I look back at kids that sat in the same chapel service as I did. I think about kids that I went to, to church with that sat in the same preaching that I did. They heard the same voice, but they didn't hear the same words that I heard. I think about this scope and how many could have come to know Christ if they had only been willing, only been willing. It's not that God has set me apart and chose me in some distinct way. It's merely that I was willing. When God called, I answered. And when I couldn't call to Him, He came to me. I see the scope of this light seems to get greater. But I want you to notice a third thing, and then we'll move on. I actually preached it all backwards and upside down, but the Lord knew what He was doing. Look again at verse number 26, or verse number 13 of chapter 26. Paul says this, At midday, O king, notice this next phrase, I saw in the way a light from heaven above the brightness of the sun. Isn't that unusual, the way he says, in the way? Now, we know that this was language that was used in, in early New Testament times that, that dealt with, with someone that was a follower of Jesus Christ. They'd be called in the way. I don't think Paul's necessarily saying, I was already saved and then the Lord appeared to me. In fact, Scripture entirely refutes that premise. So I don't think Paul's necessarily trying to hint that he was already saved. But I think Paul says this in chapter 26, and he does not say it at any other time. But he says it in chapter number 26 because I believe he's denoting the sovereignty of this light. Now, don't let that word sovereignty scare you. If you're a Bible student, a lot of Bible students are scared of that word sovereignty because they think you're going to start talking about Calvinism. I'm not a Calvinist in any way. I don't believe that God's predestined anyone to hell, predestined anyone to heaven. I believe God knows who's going to go to hell, knows who's going to go to heaven. Of course, then again, I believe God knows everything. Amen? But just because He knows, that doesn't mean He chooses for them or, or determines or predestines them to those places. But just because God's not a Calvinist, and I'm not a Calvinist either, that doesn't mean that God's not sovereign. Doesn't mean that God is not providential in His actions and in the things that He does. Doesn't mean that God is not in control. And I believe that Paul, in using this language, he says, Oh, King, I was in the way. Well, what's he saying? Was he merely saying the way to Damascus? Well, I don't know. He didn't say it any other time. I kind of think what Paul is saying when he says, I was in the way, I think he's saying, I was in the way of that light. God placed me at the place that I needed to be at so that I could see that light shine from heaven. I look back over my life. I look back as a 10-year-old boy, and I, you know, I think about all the places I could have been born into in this world. I think about all... The, I mean, not just in this world, friend. I mean, in this country. You realize there's places in this country as godless and pagan as the deepest heart of Africa or as, the, as, as pagan as the midst of, of New Zealand or Papua New Guinea. There's places just as pagan in this country. Oh, they may have civilization, they may have technology, they may have sophistication, but the light of the gospel of Jesus Christ hasn't shined there for many generations. I think about so many places I could have been born at. I think about so many families, even right here in the buckle of the Bible belt. I think about so many families I could have been born into. And I think of how that God providentially allowed me, providentially allowed me to be born into a family that believed the Bible, that taught the Bible took me to a church that preached the Bible. 
You see, as a 10-year-old boy, I didn't see it. Maybe as a 13-year-old or or a 15-year-old or even a 20-year-old, I couldn't see it. And probably as a 40 or 50-year-old, I'll see it better than I see it now. But as time goes on, I see God's gracious and providential hand on my life in bringing me to a place where I could see that light shine. I've preached a message on this before, and so I'll not preach it now, but I will mention it. We see this truth in the life of Gomer wife of the Old Testament prophet Hosea. And you see how that God, even through her sin, even through her wickedness, was bringing to a, her to a place of brokenness so that he could aspire. And it was a picture of Israel and their backsliddenness and how that they, even through their iniquity, even through their rebellion, even through their apostasy, God was bringing them to a place where they could be broken that they might be espoused unto Him in a special way. Now, as a ten-year-old boy, I... I, I didn't wake up in a gutter. As a ten-year-old boy, I, I, you know, I didn't wake up with a needle in my arm and not know where I'd been. Some have. That wasn't my experience. But that doesn't make God's actions any less sovereign than they were in my life. God still led me and guided me. And there's some mysteries. I mean, listen, anybody that thinks they've got God figured out and put in a box with a bow on Him, they're just fooling themselves. There's some things I can't explain about the sovereignty of God. But I know this truth. I know that men have a choice. The Word of God teaches us that men have a choice. Christ said uh, that I would have gathered you under my uh, wings as a mother hen, but she would not. They had a choice in the matter. We do have a choice in the matter. But I see also that it's almost like God does know the choice we're going to make. I believe He does know the choice we're going to make, don't you? I don't believe He makes the choice for us, do you? But I believe He knows the choice we're going to make, don't you? And so it's almost as though God, just like with Gomer, we see that grace bought Gomer. You remember there on the auction block for, for uh, 15 homers of barley and a half an ephah? They sold her. Grace bought her. And we see that grace not only bought her, but we see that grace sought her. You remember what... Hosea said to the children of Gomer, said, Go and find your mother. Go and find your mother. The Lord said to Hosea, Go love a woman. And whenever she had left home, Hosea said, Go find your mother. Grace sought her. I look back and I see that grace sought me in my life. Listen, if the only people that ever got saved were those that got saved the first time they was ever convicted, there wouldn't be a whole lot of people saved, would there? There's times when grace has pursued me. Not just before I got saved, not just when I got saved, but even now in my life, there's times when grace seems to pursue me. It's like I can't get away from God when my flesh wants to get away from God. And I see His sovereign hand. We see that the Apostle Paul tells us that the Lord put him just where he needed to be at that moment. So we see that the light grew brighter as time went on. But I want you to notice a second thing. We see not only that the light became brighter as his testimonies were given, but we see that his sin became darker. Notice with me. Look what it says in chapter number 9. You have it in the left column of that page. Chapter number 9. Look at the first two verses and look at what Paul says. Now, you say, well, this isn't Paul. This is Luke. Well, where did Luke find out about it? Luke wasn't on the Damascus Road. He learned about it from Paul. And what was the information that Paul gave concerning his sin? Look what he says. And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desired of him letters to Damascus to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. I want you to notice first off that Paul mentions his involvement in sin. A sinner can't get saved until they acknowledge their involvement in sin. Boy, Paul could have, I mean, he could have really whitewashed his testimony. I've known people do, I've known people to whitewash their testimony, and I, I've known people to muddy their testimony up too, because that plays on emotion sometimes. I'll tell you where I, I mean, I was a 10 year old church kid when I got saved. Take it or leave it, that's who and what I was, and that's where God found me. I wasn't as bad as a lot of folks, but I was headed to the same hell as everybody was. Paul could have whitewashed his testimony. He could have said, well, you know, I had a job to do. He could have said, well, you know, I mean, I was just every man made a living. That's how I made my living. He could have said, well, you know, I was a Pharisee, and and that's the way Pharisees were at that time. But in relating his life before 
the Damascus Road and before the meeting of the Lord Jesus Christ, Paul says, I was breathing out threatenings and slaughter. Isn't that interesting the way he says it? Breathing out. He understands that it was natural to him to do that, just as natural as you or I to breathe. You know, a sinner, you know why a sinner sins? Because they're a sinner. That's why. We don't, we're not sinners because we sin. I know that a famous preacher said that one time, but we're not sinners because we sin. We sin because we're sinners. That's what we are. That's our nature is to sin. And Paul acknowledges that. And he acknowledges his involvement. He says, it was me. It was me. I was that Saul of Tarsus. I was that one that the disciples lived in fear of. I was that one that Christians trembled and shook when they heard my name. He mentions his involvement in sin. But notice in chapter number 22, notice the next thing he mentions. This is interesting. Look at verse number 4. It's on the right-hand column of your page. He says this, And I persecuted this way, notice this next phrase, unto death, binding and delivering into prisons both men and women. Let me say this. Before a sinner can ever get saved, they've got to acknowledge their involvement. They've got to acknowledge they're a sinner. Nobody gets saved except they admit to the Lord they're a sinner. They may do that verbally out loud or within the confines of their heart, but they've got to acknowledge that they're a sinner. They've got to acknowledge their involvement in sin. And the, the first time he gives his testimony, Paul says, I was a sinner. I was involved in sin. But the next time he gives it, he denotes the injuries caused by his sin. Seems to me as though Paul's understanding of his life before Calvary is beginning to develop and change. The first time he merely says that he was breathing out threatenings and slaughterings and he was binding men and women and taking them to Jerusalem. But he does not mention what he was leading them to. But in chapter number 22, he confesses that he understood he was leading those men and women to their very death. I'm sure if Paul was human, and I know he was, that there were times that he was haunted by the faces of men and women that were martyred for the cause of Christ, and it was at his feet. At the end of chapter number 22, he's going to even mention one of them by the name of Stephen. And he's going to say that I consented unto Stephen's death, and I held the coats of the men that threw rocks and killed Stephen. Paul is beginning to see the harm in his sin, not only to him, but to others. And you know, as my life continues on, short though it may have been, I look back and I see how sin hurts people. I see how my sin hurts people. I'm not talking about your sin. I know your sin hurts people, and you probably know that too. I'm talking about my sin, the things that I do. I'm seeing more and more how that my sin hurts my family. Seeing more and more how that my... You know, no man's an island unto himself. There's that ripple effect, you understand. Just like if you were to take a rock and cast it into the... A pool of water. The effect would not stay confined to the point of entry, but ripples would begin to pour out through the water. And our sins the same way. No man liveth unto himself, no man dieth unto himself. When we sin, it affects others. And as his journey, his Christian journey is advancing, and as his understanding of his life and of the love of the Lord continues, Paul says, I see now more than ever that my sin hurts Others, oh man, if we could really wrap our mind around that truth. Because no man sins but what they think, that it won't hurt anyone else. Every time we sin, we always lie to ourselves and deceive ourselves into thinking that there will either be no harm, or if there is harm, the harm will only come to us. I don't care what sin it is, I don't care how small, I don't care how insignificant it may seem to you, your sin always, always, always affects others. As fathers, our sin affects our children. As husbands, our sin affects our wives. As children, our sin affects our parents. As brothers and sisters, our sin affects our siblings. Every one of us, our sin has an effect on those around us. Paul says, I see that I was really leading them unto their death. Notice a third thing, and this is very interesting to me, because Paul makes some statements through the Word of God. I believe both of the statements are true, although there seemeth to be a contradiction. I don't think there is. And I don't think it's merely a matter 
of perception. I think it, it has to do with our level of intentions when we sin. I, let me explain what I mean. Look with me in chapter number 26 and look at verse number 9. Now, Paul said several things about his sin in chapter 26, but he says this, and this is unique. It's found nowhere else in the Word of God. He says in verse number 9, I verily thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth, which thing I also did in Jerusalem, and many of the saints did I shut up in prison, having received authority from the chief priests. When they were put to death, listen to what Paul says, I gave my voice against them. Look at, look at verse 9 again. Read it again with me. I verily thought with myself. It doesn't say I conspired with others. He says, I thought with myself that I ought to do many things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. Do you notice how things have changed? You remember in chapter number 9? What does he say? Look at chapter number 9. In verse number... Uh, one, he says, it says, And Saul, yet breathing out threatenings and slaughter against the disciples of the Lord, went unto the high priest and desires, desired of him letters to Damascus, to the synagogues, that if he found any of this way, whether they were men or women, he might bring them bound unto Jerusalem. He says, I was going under the orders of the high priest. Look at chapter number 22. It says in verse number 5, As also the high priest doth bear me witness, and all the estate of the elders, from whom I also received letters unto the brethren, and went to Damascus to bring them which were there bound to, unto Jerusalem for to be punished. Again, he says in chapter 22, I was going under the orders of the high priest. But now in chapter number 26, he says something different. He opens his mind and heart to us from when he was a sinner, and he says, I thought within myself, to do things contrary to the name of Jesus of Nazareth. You see, first he acknowledges his involvement in sin. And then he acknowledges the injuries caused by his sin. But now he opens us up to the intentions of his heart when he was a sinner. You know, we make a lot of excuses for our sin. All of us do. And I don't believe Paul was trying to make excuses when he gave his earlier testimony. And he even said this in the book of 1 Timothy in chapter 1. He talks about his sin and he said, but I obtained mercy because I did this ignorantly. But then he says in unbelief. And that's why I say it's not a contradiction because what Paul is saying when he says ignorantly, he, he denotes it by saying in unbelief. He's not saying I didn't know what I was doing. He's saying I didn't have a renewed and regenerate mind and I couldn't comprehend who it was that I was doing this against. It's interesting that whenever... You know, Paul, to our knowledge, Paul wasn't there at the crucifixion. He may have been. He, he was of an age that he could have been there, I suppose. But we have no reason to believe that Paul was, was actually there at the crucifixion. We have no scriptural record that he ever buffeted the face of the Lord. No scriptural record that he plucked out his beard or that he spit in his face. And yet, when Christ meets him on the road to Damascus... And he says, Who art thou, Lord? He says, I am Jesus of Nazareth, whom thou persecutest. I think there's two things that need to be said about that. One is this. Paul hadn't been persecuting Jesus. Paul had been persecuting the church. But when Jesus talks about the church, he equates it with himself. We ought to love the church. To love the church is to love Jesus Christ. And when I say to love the church, I don't necessarily mean, I don't mean a man-made institution. I mean a divinely ordained organism. I'm not talking about organized religion when I say the church. I'm talking about the body of believers that meet together as a family to worship the Lord and to carry out the Great Commission without sanction, without authority from any external uh, commission or any external denomination. I'm talking about those that meet together in the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. I'm talking about the local church. I think we ought, when we love the Lord, we love the church. And when we love the church, we're loving on the Lord. But let me say a second thing about this. I think that the Lord said this because He knew what was in Paul's heart. Paul wasn't doing it because he had a problem with the church. Paul was doing it because he had a problem with Jesus of Nazareth. And now, in Paul's older years, he acknowledges and he sees clearer than ever just how wicked his heart truly was. As I said, we all make excuses for our sin, but I believe one of the marks of Christian maturity is when we cease to make excuses and we acknowledge that the reason we do what we do is because we're flesh 
and we're wicked and we're unrighteous. When I sin, I'm telling the Lord that I love myself more than I love Him. That's the truth. We preached on truth this morning. That's the truth. When I sin, I'm choosing me over Jesus Christ. When I sin, I'm not doing it because it was an accident. I'm doing it because my wicked flesh longs for it. And I'm giving in and I'm choosing me over the Lord. That's why we sin. Paul, in his later years, says, I see that the reason I did what I did wasn't because I was a Pharisee, wasn't because I was commissioned by the high priests or the elders at Jerusalem. The reason I did what I was was because I was a rebel against God. And I was a sinner. And I did it because I wanted to do it. Not because I had to do it. Not because I was paid to do it. I did it because I wanted to do it. And it's a great day in our Christian life when we're quit mincing words about our sin. You know, you'll never get victory over sin until you see it the way God sees it. Victory over sin comes only through seeing sin the way God sees sin. You know why David was a man after God's own heart? Not, not because he was sinless. We know David wasn't sinless. Not because he made no mistakes. Not even necessarily because he was the most spiritual man to ever live. Because he probably wasn't. David was a man after God's own heart because he hated sin the way God hated sin. didn't guard him from ever sinning. No more than he'll guard you or I from ever sinning. But when David sinned, he'd murdered a man. He had, he had committed adultery with that man's wife. He had fathered a child with another man's wife. And what he says is, he says, Lord, against thee and thee only have I sinned. It's not because he didn't see the damage done by his sin but it's because he saw sin the way God saw it that what it truly is is an affront and an offense to the holiness of God. And it's against Him that we've sinned when we've sinned. We see that Paul's sin grew darker. But I want you to notice a third thing, and this encourages me. Look with me at chapter number 9. And we're going to read all three of these kind of in a row. It's not much Scripture. And I want you to find... Find and see what's interesting in this. It's interesting. Look at chapter number 9, verse number 13. Now this is Ananias talking. Ananias is is the man to whose house Paul went after Paul had seen the the light on the road to Damascus. Paul was struck blind by that light. Boy, let me tell you something. There's a whole theology lesson we could talk about there. You know, you'll never see until you become blind. You know the ones that are truly blind are those that think they can see. Paul, all of a sudden, now he can see, but he's been struck blind. And so they take him by the hand and lead him to the house of a man named Ananias. Now before Ananias, before Paul ever gets to Ananias' house, the Lord appears to Ananias. And he says this. Notice what it says in verse number 13. Or I'll tell you what, let's go back a little bit. Look at verse number 10. And there was a certain disciple at Damascus named Ananias. And to him said the Lord in a vision, Ananias. And he said, Behold, I am here, Lord. And the Lord said unto him, Arise and go into the street which is called Straight, and inquire in the house of Judas for one called Saul of Tarsus. For behold, he prayeth. And I've seen in a vision a man named Ananias coming in and putting his hand on him that he might receive his sign. Then Ananias answered, Lord, I have heard by many of this man how much evil he hath done to thy saints at Jerusalem. And here he hath authority from the chief priests to bind all that call on thy name. But the Lord said unto him, notice this, the Lord said unto Ananias, Go thy way, for he is a chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. For I will show him how great things he must suffer for my name's sake. Now, I've, I've got for you the, the end, sort of, of the immediate testimony of Paul in verse 18. If you want to, you could check in, in Acts chapter number 9, and you'll find out that that's all that is mentioned about the Lord's call on the life of Paul. Look at chapter 22 with me. Look at verse number 12. Now we find that the conversation is not between the Lord and Ananias, the conversation is between Ananias and Paul. And in verse number 12 it says, And one Ananias, a devout man, according to the law, having a good report of all the Jews which dwelt there, came unto me, this is Paul speaking, came unto me, and stood and said unto me, Brother Saul, receive thy sight. And the same hour I looked up upon him, and he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know his will, and see that just one, and shouldest hear the voice 
of his mouth. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. And now why tarriest thou? Arise and be baptized and wash away thy sins, calling on the name of the Lord. Notice a third thing. Look in chapter number 26 and look at verse 14. Paul again is speaking, giving his testimony. And he says this, And when we were all fallen to the earth, I heard a voice speaking unto me and saying in the Hebrew tongue, Saul, Saul, why persecutest thou me? It is hard for thee to kick against the pricks. And I said, Who art thou, Lord? And he said, I am Jesus whom thou persecutest. But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose, to make thee a minister and a witness both of these things which thou hast seen, and of those things in the which I will appear unto thee, delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom now I send thee, to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light, and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith. That is in me. You know, I find that interesting transition taking place as we read about the calling of the Apostle Paul. I found out that not only did the light get brighter, and not only did his skin get darker, but as time progressed, the call on his life seemed to get stronger. Paul says three different things about the Lord speaking to him. The first time that he tells the story, the Lord is speaking to Ananias in chapter number 9. You know, that's a lot like it is when you get saved. When you first get saved, you have a relationship with the Lord. But that relationship is very much vested in the relationship that a pastor has with the Lord. You sit under the preaching. You hear the preaching of the Word of God. And you very much understand that God is speaking to this man so that he might deliver a message. In chapter 22, now it's not the Lord speaking to Ananias. Now it's Ananias speaking to Paul. You see that the relationship, relation, I'll get it in a second. Relationship seems to have transitioned. Now again, Paul's not contradicting anything because the Lord did speak to Ananias. And here, by the way, is the, the progression of events that I, that I think took place. In chapter 26, what he's talking about took place on the Damascus Road. But I don't believe he understood much of what was being told. In chapter number 9, I believe the Lord did speak to Ananias, although the conversation between Ananias and Paul is not recorded. In chapter number 22, we find that the conversation between the Lord and Paul on the Damascus Road is omitted. We find out that the conversation between the Lord and Ananias is omitted. And only the conversation between Ananias and Paul is mentioned. We find oftentimes that our relationship goes from being just what we live in a church pew on Sunday morning and Sunday night and Wednesday night till it comes to a place where it has to do with our day today. And you know the Bible says iron sharpens iron. Paul's emphasis in chapter number 22 is on the conversation between Ananias and himself. That God revealed something to Ananias, but now there's a relationship between him and Ananias. But in chapter number 26, we're told of something that's not told us anywhere else. And that's the conversation that the Lord had with Paul on the Damascus Road. You see how things change? I want you to notice that the agent of his calling changed. At first he said, the Lord told Ananias, Next time he says, Ananias told me. But the third time he says, The Lord told me. None of those things are contradictory. But his emphasis, and I believe his emphasis on, on who is communicating and where the substance of that relationship and that calling is, it's one thing to be told by your preacher, it's another thing to be told by a friend, but it's something altogether to be sent and told. From the Lord. We see the agent of his calling is changed. Let me show you one final thing and I'll hush and we'll close. Not only did the agent of his call seem to change, but the content of his call seemed to change. What was the first thing that the Lord told Paul? Look at chapter number 9, verse 15. Now, the Lord's talking to Ananias. And what does he tell Ananias? He says, But the Lord said unto him, Go thy way, for he is a what? A chosen vessel unto me to bear my name before the Gentiles and kings and the children of Israel. Just a vessel. Let me say this. Being a vessel for the Lord and fit for the Master's use is a glorious thing. But when Paul first gives his testimony, he says, I was a vessel. A vessel denotes no idea of will, no idea of, 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 of purpose necessarily or of intrinsic purpose, just the best. 
You know, a cup is a cup. A bowl is a bowl. And all that's significant about it is what's to be. This is the attitude that Paul records concerning what the Lord was doing in life when he first got saved. He says, I was empty in God, told me. I was broken and God wounded me. I was thirsty and God gave me to drink. And I was hungry and He gave me to eat. I was just the best. Look at chapter 22. What's the next thing? This is the elaborate of all of the descriptions given. But look at verses 14 and 15. Now this is Ananias talking to Paul. And he said, The God of our fathers hath chosen thee, that thou shouldest know His will and see that just one and should us hear the voice of his mouth. Did you get that? Paul, the Lord has chosen you so that you can know something, so that you can see something, and so that you can hear something. For thou shalt be his witness unto all men of what thou hast seen and heard. When he gives his testimony in chapter 9, he's just a vessel. But now in chapter number 22, he's a witness. He's a man that has experienced the goodness and grace of God. He's a man that has a message to give, something to tell. Paul's been there. He's seen. We make a lot to do about witnessing. I think we should. I think that's right. I'm not against the Romans' road. That's wonderful. If you use the Romans' road to witness to people, God bless you. Keep doing it. But we have passed to the wayside the notion of testimony. When testimonial soul winning has a clear biblical premise, what was Paul? Every time Paul got a chance, what did he do? Lifted his hand towards heaven and said, Let me tell you what the Lord did in my life. We've gotten to a place where we want to take theology and, and, and try to corner people into a profession. And oftentimes, if we just tell them what God's done in our life, they want what we've got. We just tell them what the Lord has done. What could Paul tell him? Paul could tell him, I know his will. I know his will. Not just for my life, but for the entire world. I know his will. Brother Peter already said it when he said he's not willing that he should perish. Paul's entire life was encompassed in his truth that the Son of Man has come to seek and to save that which was lost. Paul knew the will of God. Paul has seen the just one. In fact, I believe, and I mean, people won't fuss and argue, and that, that's fine if you won't fuss. I'm not going to argue with you about it. But you hear people saying, you know, that they had a vision of the Lord, that they saw the Lord. And I'll say this, I think there's a lot more supernatural takes place than the average uh, Baptist gives credit for. But I believe my Bible, when the Word of God, Paul said he would see last of all of me as one born out of due time. Paul says the Lord would see last of all of me. I still believe that's true. That's the reason Paul could be an apostle. One of the requirements of being an apostle is you had to be able to bear witness of the resurrection of the Lord. Paul was born out of good time. He wasn't one of the original twelve apostles, but on the Damascus Road, it was clear to him that the Lord Jesus was alive. He had seen the just one, and he had heard his voice. Paul had a message. This is what drove his life. He had a message. Everywhere he went, he might have gone without money in his pocket, without shoes on his feet, without uh, food in his belly or a roof over his head, but he always had a message. Bothers me this day, and I'm not just trying to fuss and be ornery, but bothers me this day of young preachers that don't have a message. If we don't have anything else, we ought to have a message. That Bible's full of messages that mankind needs, and there's no excuse to ever be without a message. Hey, there's times when I've had to dig a little deeper than I wanted to. There's times when my Bible study has been drier than I wanted it to be. But it was my fault, not his, because there's always <laughs> We see that he's a witness. And one final thing. Notice what it says in chapter 26. Now, we find the word witness again, but the emphasis is not on the fact that he's a witness. Look at verse 16. The Lord's speaking to Paul, and He says this, But rise and stand upon thy feet, for I have appeared unto thee for this purpose. That word's very significant. To make thee a what? A minister and a witness. Both of these things which thou hast seen, of those things in the which I will appear unto thee. Notice how the conversation shifts. Delivering thee from the people and from the Gentiles unto whom I now send thee 
to open their eyes and to turn them from darkness to light and from the power of Satan unto God, that they may receive forgiveness of sins and inheritance among them which are sanctified by faith that is in me. In chapter number 9, he's a vessel. In chapter number 22, he's a witness. But at the end of his life, Paul says, the Lord called me to be a minister. Now, when he says minister, I don't necessarily think he means a local church pastor. Paul didn't seem to do very much local church pastor. But I believe what Paul is saying is this. When he records this testimony, I see now more than, and by the way, this was told to Paul on the Damascus Road. This was not told to him by Ananias. This was not told to Ananias by the Lord. This is deeply personal. Paul before had never shared this, but now more than ever, as he's on his way to Rome and as he's appealing to Caesar, he says, I see now more than ever that God has sent me to minister to the Gentiles. I have a purpose in my life. I have a calling in my life. God's not saved me just so I can sit and vegetate. God's called me so that I might reach people with the gospel of Jesus Christ. You see, it's the same testimony, but we see a progression as Paul's life continues on. And here's the question I want to ask you in closing. Has your Christian walk progressed? Everything's either growing or dying. Has it progressed? There have been times in my life I ought to have been growing, but I was dying. Thankfully, the Lord resurrected me from that carnality and fleshliness and breathed life into me afresh in the new. There's been times in my life that I have slacked in my Christian walk, but I'm thankful the Lord had mercy and encouraged me to keep going forward and to get back close to the true vine. Tonight, could you honestly say you're closer to the Lord than you were a year ago? Could you say that you know more about Him today than you did a year ago? Could you say you walk with Him more today than you did a year ago? Is your prayer life stronger today than it was a year ago? Do you witness more today than you did a year ago? See, we're not meant just to stay stagnant and stay. We're meant to grow and to develop. And friend, if you're not growing, you're dying. You're not getting closer. You're getting farther away. So what are you going to do about that tonight? We preached this morning about truth, and now we deal with truth. Well, here's a truth to you tonight. You're either growing or dying. Which is it? You and you alone know who you and God. But I wonder if you face truth honestly enough to say, Lord, my life hasn't been what it needs to be. Oh, you may have, listen, you may have veered a mile or you may have veered an inch. That's how it begins. Why don't you deny it? God, you know, why don't you say, Lord, I want to draw an eye to you. And you'll draw an eye to you.